So Matthew 19, page 986, from verse 1, this is God's Word. When Jesus had finished saying these things, He left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large, large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a, man may, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus' disciples, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Amen. We trust that God will help us as we look to His Word today. Well, let's uh, have our Bibles open. We want to see what God's Word says here this morning as we look at this subject of marriage and divorce. Uh, when I was a student many years ago, uh, one of the things that the Christian Union did in terms of its outreach was it occasionally held Grill a Christian events. And we would have had permission to have an event in the student dining area at lunchtime and a small panel of Christians would simply take questions from the floor. A microphone would go out, and people would ask all sorts of issues. Pretty sure it would be challenging to do that, even more challenging to do that now. Uh, in the few times that I was involved in that, it was pretty intense, and I found I really wasn't very good at it. I, I thought of great answers about 10 minutes after uh, I left the the dining room. I didn't think on my feet very well whenever those tough questions came. Maybe you can identify that. There are all sorts of questions that come to you, and you think of great answers, you know, later on. For Jesus, tough questions were not coming in a carefully controlled environment. They were, they were as bread and butter. They were coming all the time. Very many of the occasions when we have Jesus doing things and teaching things and responding to issues are, are times whenever he was responding to questions. And some of those questions were actually questions that were designed to trap him. They weren't questions that were looking for answers. They were there to ensnare him one, one way or another. And that's the case here in this passage. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time now. He's going to the cross and he has moved southeast from Galilee, Galilee across the Jordan into a largely Jewish area. And the Pharisees come to him, and we find in verse 3, they ask him a question that is designed to test him or to trap him. Is it lawful, they say, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So what was happening here was that the Pharisees were trying to draw Jesus into a difficult a 
theological controversy that was raging at the time. All of the Jews accepted that divorce was possible, but they were divided as to what occasioned a proper reason for divorce. If you followed the more conservative Shammai school, it said that the only ground for divorce was, was a unchastity, unfaithfulness. The more liberal Hillel school said that a man could initiate a divorce, and it largely was men who were able to initiate divorces. It was very difficult for a woman to divorce her husband. But the more liberal school said that you could initiate a divorce if your wife burned the dinner or if you found somebody who looked better than she did. Now, I know that that would never happen here for anybody, but, but you can see in those situations how vulnerable that was for women. They were constantly at risk of being abandoned, and of course, as a, a single divorced woman, maybe older in those days, the opportunity to have income was very, very limited indeed. Now, the Pharisees knew that this debate went on, and they sought to draw Jesus into it, probably to divide his support and get him embroiled in this controversy. And Jesus, in his response, gives us some really important teaching on marriage. Now, these are difficult things. We know that. Some of these issues are sore for Many of us, we, we were praying in the prayer meeting about this this morning, and, and somebody prayed, you know, there's, there's, we know, Lord, that there's not a family that's untouched by some of these issues. That's true for, for probably nearly all of us. And, and one of the things we need to remember as we look to these words is that these come from the Lord Jesus Christ who loves us. Verse 2 tells us that the Lord Jesus was healing people as this controversy comes up. Here, here, is, here is a Lord who loves people so much, desires their best, and therefore will not hold the truth of God's intention uh, from us. There are a number of things that we could focus on as we look at this passage, but what we want to simply do this morning is outline what the Bible says about the nature of marriage and His teaching here on divorce. There are a number of areas where Christian faith clashes with our culture at the moment, and the nature of marriage and sexuality is probably a most significant in that area of clashing. Here is where human autonomy and independence is being asserted most strongly within our culture. Our culture wants to say we want to overthrow convention, we want to define what is right and wrong for ourselves. And therefore, we as God's people really need to be equipped to remember and to, to, to know what God says and to be reminded of what God says. One of the commentaries I was looking at this week summarized Jesus' teaching on marriage here into six simple statements, and we're going to use those headings as we look at what Jesus says here this morning. So first of all, Jesus is saying very clearly that marriage is designed by God. Rather than immediately take a side in this argument and controversy, Jesus takes them back to the original intention of marriage, and in doing so, He makes it clear that marriage is designed by God. Haven't you read, verse 4, He replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. 
So he's quite simply saying, this is not something that society has dreamt up. Therefore, society is not at liberty to define it. It is up to God to define it and tell us how it should be used and what is appropriate for marriage. And you notice that, that Jesus takes people to the Scriptures. Haven't you read, he says? So, so whenever we look at these great moral debates that, that, that are on every newspaper, in every television report, these great moral debates, how do we know what is right? How do we decide what is appropriate? Well, today, people might say things like, well, you know, you've really got to go with the, the views of the majority. We know better than, than the generations before us now. Or we might want to go with how people feel. You know, wh what is it that we really sense seems wise and right in our own eyes? But that's not what Jesus does. He wants us to hear what God says, the original designer of marriage. And in order to hear what God says, He takes us to the Scriptures. And if some of you want to look into this a little bit further, He takes us to a part of the Scriptures in which the narrator speaks in Genesis, and He attributes those words to God Himself. So, the Old Testament is not only God speaking whenever it says, thus saith the Lord, it is God speaking even whenever the narrator speaks according to Jesus Christ. So, whenever we listen to the news and we watch the debates, it is so helpful to ask ourselves, why is this person making this argument? What authority are they appealing to? And Jesus says, when we interact with, with these great questions, we need to hear what God says, and in order to hear what God says, we need to hear what the Bible says. Marriage designed by God. Marriage is designed then to be complementary. Now, that doesn't mean that you say to your wife or your husband, you're looking lovely today. Uh, there is that sort of complementary, but, but uh, this is not the complementary that we're talking about here. It says it's that God made them, created them male and female, complementary together. Now, there is a contentious statement in today's world. You know that one of the, the dominant ideologies that is behind so much of our news uh, stories is transgender theory, which says that, that male and female are really social constructs that are not linked to our biology and that our maleness and our femaleness, our, our gender, can be distinct from our biology. But that's not what the Bible says. It says that, that God made them male and female. And we, we know that, that, that some people struggle with their gender, and that can be very, very troubling and difficult. But, rather that, but this would suggest, I think, that, that true peace in that situation lies in conforming to how God has made us male and female rather than in trying to conform our bodies to how we may feel. Now, simply expressing that view for some of you in your workplace might cost you your job. And indeed, in the future, that might be so for even more of us. You notice, too, that, that that He creates them male and female for the purpose of marriage, not male and male or female and female. And again, here is one of those areas in which we will take a different view to, to many people within our society. 
many of our gay friends and colleagues, family members. One of the things that is different, of course, about homosexuality at the moment is that it is one of those things that the Bible says is not God's plan. It's, it's, it's one of those things that the Bible says is sinful, but it has a lobby that is telling us that in order to fit in and to be good in today's eyes, we've got to celebrate it and affirm it. So, it is not the case with other things that the Bible says is sinful, things like greed, for example, or slander or drunkenness. Our society is not saying you've got to accept that drunkenness is a good thing and affirm that. But that is the case with homosexuality, and that's putting the church at loggerheads with our culture. Undoubtedly, we are being portrayed as harsh and unloving, but we've got to say that there is a complementarity between the sexes, male and female, and that is by the design of God. Third thing we can say here is that marriage is designed to be permanent. Jesus says, and in fact, He quotes in verse 5, Genesis, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So the two are becoming one. The one flesh union is designed to be a permanent union. When marriage is created, the two become one, and God says that new union is not to be separated because God has actually put that together. When Jesus makes this pronouncement, the Pharisees bring up the fact that Moses was able to issue a certificate of divorce. In fact, they say that Moses commanded the people to issue a certificate of divorce, and Jesus corrects them, you might notice. But, but Jesus points out that God had done that as a concession. The people's hearts were hard. It was a time of rebellion against the ways of God. And the, the situation was that all that needed to happen for a divorce to take place was that a man just needed to say to his wife, I divorce you. And Moses brought some regulation to that to say, well, you can't just do that. You've got to have a certificate. In other words, you've got to have witnesses. It's got to be written out. You've got to go to some authority, usually in that case, to write that out. There's got to be some regulation to avoid this awful and vulnerable situation. But what the Pharisees had done, you see, is they had come and they had taken this concession and they had used it as a license to live in the way that they wanted to live. Now, there's one of the ways that we can test our hearts, one of the ways in which we can look inside. Do we come to God, to His Word, to His laws, asking, how can I please you? Or do we come saying, what can I get away with? You see, the people that Jesus were, was dealing with were saying, what can we get away with? How little do we have to do in order to do broadly the right thing? And you see, they had missed the intention of God creating marriage in a way that was designed to be permanent. There's an ancient fourth century bishop John Chrysostom, and he uh, said that, that God had designed marriage in this particular way to have one man and one woman for, for life. 
He had not designed it to have one man and then several women after a number of divorces. And he said that if he had, he would have put several women in the garden with Adam. That was his, his argument. But he only created two, one for each other for life. Marriage designed to be permanent. Marriage then designed to be exclusive. This one flesh union designed to be exclusive. The man is to, to cleave to his, his wife and to his wife alone. As we'll see shortly, adultery is not a little thing. It assaults the marriage bond. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I remember an article in one of the Saturday papers, you know, how an affair saved my marriage. And you'll get people who will, who will say, well, it can bring some, some good things into a, into a marriage. But marriage is designed to be exclusive. Each partner to find their fulfillment in each other. Marriage then is designed to be fifth nuclear. Now, some marriages are nuclear, not in that way, okay? Um, <clears throat> a, a, a nucleus, you know, a, a nucleus, a new nucleus. In other words, the loyalties change. Jesus says, for this reason, God says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, cleave to his wife. So that the, the wife or the husband comes before the parents. I was listening to somebody, it's not in my notes, I hope I'm going to tell this story properly, and, and as part of his marriage counseling, he, he pointed this out to young men, young men who tend to have a very strong relationships with their mummies. And, and he said, now he says, before you're married, if you see your girlfriend and your mother fall in off the pier, and you have to jump in, you save your mummy first. But after you're married... You leave your mummy and you save your wife. Okay? I thought that was really helpful. <laughs> and, and so part of the, the new couple, part of their job is that they're to distance the older generation. That's painful. And part of the parent's job is to encourage that letting go and that distance, and that's painful, so that the new nuclear family can be formed, designed to be nuclear. Marriage then, sixthly, is not for everyone. Jesus makes that point at the beginning of his teaching in, in verses, or at the end of his teaching in verses 10 to 12. You see, his opponents are startled by this high view of marriage. You see, they've been used to living in this culture where it was really, really easy to get a divorce. If things didn't work out, if you didn't like it, you could jump ship. But Jesus teaches this very high view of marriage. His opponents are startled, but so are his disciples. You see, they blurt out verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Imagine, he says, you're getting into this situation where you jump into something, you don't know how it's going to be, and you can't get out of it. Better not to try. And you might, say, you might expect Jesus to say, well, no, 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 that's not the case. You've misunderstood me. But he doesn't do that. He basically says, marriage is not for everyone. And he speaks about eunuchs, oddly. He speaks about eunuchs in three ways. He says, some are born 
eunuchs. Some are made that way by men. You remember, it was not uncommon if you were working in the the sort of the high echelons of the civil service to a king. You might have contact with the royal harem, for example, and, and uh, you, you would be castrated. Uh, the, the, you remember Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. So he says, some are made that way by men. But then he says in verse 12, some have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In other words, as one writer says, there are some who, for the sake of pleasing the king, have been willing to offer him this prized area of their sexuality and have been willing to stay single like their master did. Either way, Jesus implies, it is a gift, this calling to marriage or this calling to singleness. Neither is better than the other. Both provide an environment in which we can serve the Lord. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about marriage and its benefits. He talks about marriage and its challenges. In the midst of it, he says he wishes that all men were like he was, in other words, single. The single person, Paul says, is free to serve the Lord in ways which the married person, the married person cannot. And, and so he speaks about those who are married and those who are single, and he says each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. None is better than the other. Marriage is not for everyone. Now, I, I was struck last year to read a comment by a Christian leader who said this. He said, the, the least challenged idolatry in the evangelical church is family. The least challenged idolatry in the Christian church is family. It really got me thinking, and he's right. We hear it all the time. I sometimes sit down in a home where there's been a bereavement, and I say, so tell me about this person. And they'll say, they just lived for their family. Friends, we're not supposed to live for anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes people justify a lack of commitment to God and his church family by saying, oh, we're just taking some family time. We're making memories, you know. And everybody applauds and says, yes, we understand how good that is. You think that's what Paul would have said or Jesus? Sometimes the family has been an idol that has allowed people to minimize their commitment to the Lord. Or within the church, it displays itself as us drawing circles, and we draw circles by blood rather than by spirit. We deny the gospel, and we distance people whom God has given to us to be our eternal brothers and sisters. A couple of months ago, I understood one of the consequences of this a little bit better in a way that I hadn't seen before, I was at a conference that was, a few others were with me from here, a conference dealing with helping those who were living with same-sex attraction and were seeking to live faithful, biblical, celibate lives. And one of the speakers talked about how hard it could be in churches for people who were dealing with that issue because so many churches had taken marriage and family and elevated it above what the Bible said and at least given the impression that this is what you need to be whole and happy. And yet, who do we follow? 
a single man, a virgin, who was the only whole and perfectly fulfilled human being to have ever walked this earth. Marriage is not for everyone, and we must not imply that it is. So, six things then that Jesus affirms about marriage that that unsettled his listeners should rock our world in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Jesus says there is a design. God says one man, one woman for life. However, we do need to talk about divorce because Jesus talked about divorce. And here, Jesus recognized that despite this high view of marriage, God that, that God has given us, there is the possibility of divorce. See, verse 9, you see, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And so this is what's called the exception clause. There's an exception. There's a bit of a debate about what this word actually means here. It's the word pornea. You can understand it's the word that lies behind the word pornography and so on. And it can refer to a whole range of sexual activity that falls outside God's plan. But here the context is divorce. It's probably best as seeing it referring to divorce and, and, and to, a, to adultery and other serious sexual sins that would have been seen as breaking the marriage bond, so incest and prostitution and things like that. And Jesus is saying, where adultery has taken place, Divorce is an option. Adultery assaults the marriage bond. And divorce is an option, but not a necessity. Possibility of reconciliation and forgiveness. And there are tremendous stories we know of people who've demonstrated that, surviving marriages that have survived such a disaster. But divorce is a legitimate option where there's been adultery. Now, classically, the Reformed Church has had this understanding of marriage and divorce that they're that divorce is permitted in two broad areas. First, on this area, on this ground of adultery and those corresponding serious sexual sins. And then secondly, based on 1 Corinthians 7, on the ground of desertion. And there we're told of an unbelieving husband who refuses to dwell with his wife because of her faith. And so, desertion opens up the way for divorce. And many would see many would see serious forms of abuse and, and domestic violence as coming under that banner of desertion, of refusing to dwell with one's spouse, behaving like an unbeliever. We need to say, too, that the church has generally understood that where the Bible sanctions divorce in such circumstances, it also sanctions the possibility of remarriage of what we might call the innocent party. It's the classic sort of view. It's the view of the eldership here and the view that I tend to abide by. And of course, that's not what we see within our culture. Today, we find that people get divorced for much less serious reasons. People say things like, we just grew apart. We fell out of love. I remember James Philip talking about this. Somebody came to him and they said, you know, I just don't feel I love my wife anymore. And he said to him, what's that got to do with it? And yet, that's the criteria by which people judge the rightness and value of a relationship. Does it make me feel happy? How we have turned as a society into ourselves. And so, we find that 
Something like two in five marriages fail, couples walk up the aisle thinking, well, if this doesn't work out, we can go our separate ways. So Jesus, you see, calls us here to take all of this tremendously seriously. God's intention is for those who marry, one man, one woman for life. We spoke about this 10 years ago when we looked at Mark's gospel, the corresponding passage there. We talked about a number of implications. One was that we strive for purity. We don't want to be like those Pharisees who who took an exception and said, what can I get away with? What can I get away with in the area of purity? We want to be those who say, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. We also talk then about choosing wisely, particularly to our younger people. If God intends us to marry, then we must choose wisely, and that means, above all things, choosing someone who shares your love for Jesus if you're a Christian. And I think that that also means that we don't date people who don't share our love for Jesus. The Bible tells us we shouldn't awaken love until it so desires. And, and it's unwise to put ourselves into a situation where our hearts get entangled with someone who, if we are to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, we will never marry. And then thirdly, we said 10 years ago that those who are married need to maximize their marriage, to protect it, to invest in it. Husbands sacrificially loving their wives as Christ loved the church, wives loving and submitting to their husbands. So these are challenging things. Why does God take this so seriously? Because marriage is a picture of what He's like with us. We have, you see, the perfect bridegroom. We have one who is the perfectly faithful spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ. He chooses us not when we are all made up to go out on a date, but when He sees us as we really are in our sin. If we think of the story of Hosea, He sticks with us through our persistent unfaithfulness and adulteries, spiritual adulteries. And he loves us with an incredible sacrificial love. Remember where this is? Jesus is heading north to south, south to Jerusalem and to the cross where he will stretch out his arms and allow himself to be put to death. And you see, friends, the message of the Scriptures is that as that grips you and as that Spirit comes to indwell you, then you can say, I have been loved like this. I am not going to live as the world lives. I'm going to trust the Lord Jesus and depend upon the Lord Jesus to do what may not be easy, but what is right. In singleness, in marriage, in divorce, in widowhood or widowerhood, in marriage, in all things. Give yourself to Him, for He gave Himself for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we find ourselves easily able to identify with these disciples who caught themselves thinking that your teaching was hard 
and above our capabilities. And Lord, sometimes we confess that it is, for we are not trusting you as we should, and we're seeking to live in our own strength rather than in yours. You have given each one of us who belongs to you everything we need for life and godliness in the situation that we're in today, not the situation that we dream of being in tomorrow. So, Lord, help us in the challenges that we each face in these areas to know what it is to walk your way, have hearts that are yielded to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.